Hey, everybody. My name is Justin Murphy, and this is my podcast. It's called Other Life because it's where I talk about all the things I don't get to talk about in normal life. So if you're into it, you should definitely subscribe. And if you'd like to talk to other people interested in what I'm interested in, or ask me questions or request future topics or guests, please just follow the link in the show notes. Finally, I just want to give a huge thanks to all the donors and patrons. I could not keep this podcast running without financial backers, so I'm very grateful. And I would just say that if you enjoy this podcast or my blog or my videos, please do consider signing up to give a little bit of money each month. It would really help me grow out this project, and it would mean a lot to me. So thanks a lot. Now on to the podcast, over and out. Thank you so much for joining me. Very welcome. While we were waiting for you to enter, I was uh, giving my best attempt at a little introduction to you and, and, and your ideas and your kind of larger project, at least as far as I've been able to um, understand, you know, what you're trying to do and the, and the kind of the major aspects of your ideas. But as I think I said to you in the email, I've only come around to your work quite recently. You were suggested to me by someone who, uh, who watches these streams I've been doing and reads my blog and stuff as someone that, you know, he thought you and I would have a lot to talk about and that I should look into. And I, I'm grateful for the suggestion because I, I, I have enjoyed reading a lot of your texts this week. And uh, yeah, so I'm just excited to talk with you. Oh, but where I was going with that is that I, you know, my, I don't understand your project necessarily perfectly well. So maybe one way we could just kick it off is do you, maybe could you tell us in your own words, how do you see, um, like what, how, how do you, how do you see the, the, the larger, uh, from a larger perspective, the stuff that you've been writing under the blog deep code, for instance, and the talking points that you've really been kind of thinking about and talking about in different places. Uh, how, how, how would you describe, you know, when you meet someone like at a bus stop or something and they ask you like, you know, uh, what, aren't you that guy who writes that blog deep code? What's that all about? You know, how, how do you think about it in a kind of high level overview way? Well, um, I guess first, the first order is that I generally endeavor to give people, um, as honest and full a answer to that question is as is possible. And so a lot of it depends on who I'm talking to. Um, in this case, I'm talking to you and by proxy to some invisible audience that may or may not be also watching this video. Um, so in that context, I suppose maybe the best way to answer it is, is in terms of a narrative, which is how, how did I come to find myself choosing to do that? Great. Yeah. Um, so the arc basically has, I think three major pieces to it. Um, Developmentally, I'm, I think, a pretty standard child of the 80s nerd archetype. So very low EQ, low socialization, introspection, um, introversion. On the uh, spectrum a little bit, maybe? Yeah, it depends. I've, I've had a substantial amount of uh, high-quality help, so... I think I show up as a lot less on the spectrum than maybe I used to. Okay. Um, but yeah. And, and, and so then the natural attraction to the portfolio of nerd stuff that was available in that time frame. So uh, an avid player of role-playing games, an avid reader of science fiction and fantasy, uh, an avid player of strategy and board games, and of course, a substantial amount of time spent on computers. Um, originally on you know, computers that had tape drives and then disk drives and then hard drives and then those cool things that could communicate with other computers, et cetera, et cetera, right? So that's a one major arc. And <laughs> ironically enough, um, much like our current, uh, we call it nominee for the Supreme Court, uh, I was also a uh, quite 
unsuccessful in, well, no, I don't want to make that parallel because there's too much noise on that. I did not have any uh, girlfriends um, <laughs> or any kind of uh, uh, female companionship in any fashion until uh, early in college, um, So, which is sort of part of that same archetype. This had important impacts in terms of socialization and EQ. So I kind of maxed out that player class uh, in terms of being a very successful technology entrepreneur. Um, I was involved in three successful technology ventures in the late 90s and early 2000s. Uh, the last was a company that I was the CEO and founder of called DivX that I took public in 2006. And in 2007-ish, I retired from that entire phase of my life. Cool. Then in 2008, um, I was in retirement and sort of allowing myself to play. So that play consisted of finding out what the what was really going on in the social field. So doing things like going to Necker Island and hanging out with Richard Branson, um, or going to the Aspen Institute and hanging out with you know whatever uh, Bill Clinton, and um, going to the Santa Fe Institute and hanging out with people like Murray Galman, who's a Nobel Processing physicist. Yeah, they're geniuses um, over there. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. In fact, I'm hoping to be able to go back there again in uh, mid-October. So immersing myself in that and just sort of playing in that in that field, which had become available to me uh, because I had suddenly found myself wealthy. Um, and this happened in the context of the 2008 financial crisis. Mm. So I happened to be in a place where I could just sort of ask questions and people who should have good answers to those questions happen to be sitting next to me at lunch. Um, like, you know, Nobel prize winning economists and literally the guy who invented the credit default swap as a concept. And what I discovered was a rather shocking degree of asymmetry between the narrative that was being presented at the public level and the reality of the people who actually had some degree of insight into what was going on. And so I started just following that basic thread of you know, the asymmetry between the, the commonplace narrative and the people who knew what was going on, but in what you might call a model-free or a, uh, a random walk. I just started following my curiosity. And what I found was a really rather surprising degree of commonality, which was people who knew a whole lot about some particular subject tended to say that the commonplace conventional wisdom was highly unaware of the actual risk that was bedded in the domain that they had expertise in. It mm. kind of didn't matter what it was. So if it happened to be a person who had, this is like 10 years ago, the most expertise in the impact of climate change on coral reefs, or it happened to be somebody who had the most exper expertise on the fragility of the game theoretic aspects associated with cyber warfare, or it had to be somebody who had expertise on the impact of immigration on sociopolitical systems or, you know, fill in the blank. The, 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 the N in this was actually rather large. I talked to lots and lots of people covering lots and lots of territory. And what I found universally was almost everybody was in fact rather panicked when it came to their specific domain of expertise. Um, and this, this shows up as a, a really interesting, what do I say? Not inverse has an oblique but similar relationship to a concept called Gelman aphasia. Are you familiar with that? No, I'm not. It's a neat concept. So Murray Gelman, 
is his current term. And he happens to know a lot about certain subjects, actually a large number, but let's just pick physics as an example. Mm -hmm. And what he noticed is that he would find himself reading some piece of popular literature, um, a book, most most notably a magazine or newspaper. So let's say the New York Times, for example. And he happens to flip to a story that happens to be about physics. And because he happens to be a domain expert, he notices that this article is really terrible. Like it has most of its facts wrong. In fact, oftentimes upside down or backwards. Um, and he gets very upset and it's like, that's terrible. And then he flips the page to another article that happens to be outside of his domain of expertise. And he immediately forgets that that's a category of journalism and assumes that this particular article is, of course, mostly correct. Um, so he has an, a, an aphasic relationship to a deeper understanding of the fact that the common story may in fact be universally asymmetrically out of alignment with what the domain experts happen to know. Um, so this is kind of like the inverse of that. The domain okay. experts are completely aware of the fact that their particular domain is super fragile and heading in the direction of fragility, but enter into an almost a delusional relationship with their own area of expertise by assuming that everything else is actually okay. Right. Um, right. So basically I found myself as being somewhat uncommonly holding an awareness of the fact that most things actually seem to be much higher, holding much higher risk than was normally understood. And as I started adding these things together, noticing that these risk factors ended up being self-reinforcing as opposed to ameliorating. So this then entered into a recognition that, or, or rather, rather building a model and attempting to make sense of what's going on. Like, why, why is this happening? What does it mean? Um, and because I was in a place where I could ask people lots of questions again, I started being able to get access to very high-quality models around how culture works, how um, sociology actually fits in the context of, say, human psychological development, hmm. and began constructing a meta model of kind of how everything fits together and a synthetic integration of the scientific disciplines endeavoring to make sense of the whole system, including the natural system, the physical environment, the human system, the anthropological system, and the, the noetic system, the system that actually operates at the level of human intelligence and consciousness and how these systems actually interoperate. And basically what that meta model told me was that uh, things were in fact actually rather um, bad, that the, <laughs> the civilization and the world um, that we are dependent upon are actually extraordinarily fragile and continuing to move in the direction of increasing fragility. And that this sort of thing can actually be modeled reasonably well, that we have decent framework. It's not awesome frameworks because mm -hmm. you can't run experiments very well. Mm -hmm. um, decent frameworks to explain and have predictive capacity. So then in sort of the third phase, uh, this is the deep code phase, um, I began endeavoring to use that, that model or that set of models uh, in the context of what, what seemed to actually be going on. So here we're talking about around 2011, around the time of Occupy and uh, the Arab Spring, and begin making predictions about what future states might show up in different contexts. Um, and making meaning out of what events did occur in the context of the models, to, to refine the models. And uh, in the deep code arc, then, it is basically three major pieces. One is what I just described. So you may think of this as a making sense of where we are. Uh, 
The second is endeavoring to construct a way to, to endeavor to design a place where we could and in principle should go. So given that where we are seems highly unstable, what might something look like that is in fact not highly unstable? Um, by the way, in, in the context of what we expect the future to look like. So not just highly, not just stable in sort of the immediate term, but it's somehow intrinsically stable in the context of, for example, exponential technology. Uh, and then the third piece is transition. What, what kinds of things might be put in place to enable us to move the maximum amount of what we care about from where we are to where we need to go. Mm. Um, and that's it. So that's, that's the, that's the story. That's I hope that great. was compact and useful. That's very useful. That's really great. Yeah. Um, for someone who's only come across you quite recently, that definitely gives me much more context and background for thinking about, yeah, just who you are and where you're coming from and, and how your writings that I have read, um, how they came to be. So that's really useful. Um, it's interesting. A few things come to my mind listening to you give that story. One is uh, it, it, it makes me think a lot about uh, Nassim Taleb. Are you familiar with him? I'm sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, it sounds like a lot of a lot of consistencies in, in, in your stories. And I've always thought he's uh, really smart and really on top of a lot of things. So that's interesting, just noting that. And another thing that I, I wonder, I mean, it's just to kind of jump right in, I guess, with with difficult questions, if you don't mind. Um, I mean, I think a lot about the degree to which it's even possible anymore for us to to talk with these kinds of um, steering metaphors, kind of like you were just using. You know, we think of we tend to think of society as this kind of ship and if we're smart and we figure out how it works and uh, we can kind of communicate to each other different proposals and then try to kind of steer the ship uh, based on, on these proposals to get us from one state to another. And I, I want, I just wonder if the precisely what's happening is that in some sense, global techno capitalism has be, is be, is becoming so complex and so fast. If the runaway process is so great that a kind of, you know, non-human superintelligence in the form of, you know, global markets is basically now escaped our control to the degree that the, even using the kinds of um, implicit metaphors that you were using about like how we can kind of steer humanity from one, one state to another, you know, I, I, I'm not at all convinced that that's not possible, but I have to admit, I'm, I'm very concerned and about the, about the possibility that perhaps that entire way of thinking is, is just, uh, no longer something that we have access to. Like there, we are not steering the ship anymore. In other words, and that you know we are now predominantly being steered by non-human intelligence forces that are over and above our heads and quite beyond our control. I, I, I wonder if you've you know what you think about that. Well, I think that's an accurate assessment. Um, this is my. So let me put it in some context. Sure. Um, what I heard you say. And I think it's probably also important to make sure we stay somewhat in sync since we're we've just met and we're talking about rather complicated things. Yeah, that's true. Great. What I heard you say was first something on the lines of some question about how it is that groups of humans are able to collaborate in making effective choices in the world. Second that there is some relationship between how the first comes to being and the context that it finds itself in. Uh, third, 
that the context that we find ourselves in is substantially more either turbulent or daunting or itself agentic than the how that we have in category in number one. Hmm. And therefore, we find ourselves no longer able to have effective agency. Is that a fair restatement? Sure, that works. Yeah. Okay. So I completely agree. However, um, let me then share how I respond to that assessment. Yeah. The first is to take a look at in the context of category one, um, what, what might be the boundary conditions on how much collective intelligence we could actually aspire to under different configurations, as it were. Um, second, in category two, is there any way of having a sense of whether we're dealing with a practical problem or a principled problem? And a practical problem is I can't, if I can only lift 100 pounds and I'm dealing with a 200-pound weight, I can't lift it. A principled problem is I can't lift myself. Right? That's, there's problems right. that are insoluble in, in principle and problems that are insoluble in practice. Right. Uh, and then the third is what are the characteristics of the problem that we, that we have to deal with? You know, are we dealing with something where there is a, for example, a large state of complexity? Are we dealing with something that has a large state of complexity that also has a large rate of growth? Are we dealing with something that has a large state of complexity, a large rate of growth, and has an adaptive relationship with category one, whereby the more capable we become, the more capable it becomes, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. you know, what, what are the characteristics? Now, it's this level of thinking, and by the way, I should mention, I'm going to use the word I here, where in fact, the, the deep code project is a collaboration, okay. but many of the folks in the collaboration choose to remain anonymous. And so okay. I'll just sort of take responsibility. And a good rule of thumb is to the degree to which it appears to be good stuff is coming out of deep code. You can assume that somebody else did it. And to the degree to which it's poorly done, you can assume and blame me. I appreciate your modesty. Um, and then when you're hearing me speak directly, you can take that for what it's worth. Sure. Um, okay. So, Category one, uh, this is where I began the process of doing things like, for example, considering the blue church. I don't know if you spent any time taking a look at that, but that was an, yeah. an effort to take a look at the collective intelligence coordinating mechanisms that had achieved the highest level of actual efficacy in, in, in history, which is okay. sort of where we are right now. Now, that, that analysis has basically two pieces to it. Well, I guess three. One is aesthetic. Here's what it looks like and feels like. But the most important parts are what its limits are. It actually has boundary conditions. And so it is, in fact, not capable. It's, let's say, for example, it can only be 100 pounds. And so if you're dealing with a problem which is above 100 pounds, it's not the right tool. And then secondarily, in terms of historical location now, um, for many reasons that we can drill into if it's interesting, it's also in the process of a rate downward, which is that uh, the blue church as an effective collective intelligence is decreasing in effectiveness. Um, so at its best, it couldn't deal with the problems we're dealing with. And it's also not at its best. In fact, it's kind of in our way. 
So that's one one piece. The another piece is then endeavoring at this is why the concept is called deep code, going to the deepest principles that that we could find. What might be the is there any reason to believe that there are in fact limits that the blue church is, for example, the best? Um, or are there different ways of designing collective intelligence that can give rise to something which is, say, substantially better? Um, and I'm going to use the word better here sort of metaphorically, just gooder than the blue church. And while we're at it, um, since it's not really useful to design something which is good but not good enough, uh, is there any reason to believe that in principle it could be, quote unquote, good enough to address the problematics that we're dealing with? Um, and then secondarily, this has actually never been published, but also taking a look at the problem domain. Uh, you gave it a term. What was it called? Late stage capitalism or techno capitalism or something like that? Oh, I, I was just, I think, colloquially calling it, yeah, like like global techno-capitalism or whatever you want, really. Yeah. Um, so that was a, an area. And by the way, there's a, even other aspects, um, by the way. So in terms of the meta model, you have um, sort of base complexity, which as it turns out is, is, is a big enough problem that it's worth that the Blue Church couldn't handle that. Uh, so just like the complexity of, of humanity's relationship with the natural environment all by itself is actually too hard. This is the Club of Rome discovered that in the 70s. Um, then you have the agentic capacity of the blue church itself, which is kind of like that the problem of trying to swim out into the ocean to a drowning person, mm -hmm. that as it is flailing about endeavoring to be agentic in a decreasingly dysfunctional fashion, it could take you down with it. So you have to sort of address that problem. Then you have the agentic capacity of functional collective intelligences that are orbiting around, but not part of the blue church construct. Um, this includes, for example, say Google or um, the NSA. You know, these are collective intelligence structures that are relatively functional institutions and therefore are operating at a much higher level than the blue church writ large, which of course is operating at now a relatively low level. Um, I've used the phrase, the characteristic of sort of a uh, a very large, overweight, heavyweight boxer who they swing slowly, they telegraph their punch. If you're stupid enough to let them land a punch, they can still knock you out. But if you just sort of play a little bit of rope a dope, they're going to collapse of their own volition. Um, you think but, that's where the you think that's where the blue church is right now? Is oh yes, I'm, I'm I'm reasonably confident. My confidence on that is say above eighty five percent. I like that metaphor. I think that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and you, if you use that to sort of watch what's happening um, in the Anglo-American sphere, I think you'll find that it predicts circumstances pretty effectively. Right. Okay. Um, but then you've got again these sort of these uh, splinter collective intelligences um, that have much higher agentic capacity, um, and then you have the 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 collective intelligence that I've I've called Leviathan. I think Brett Weinstein has referred to it as Goliath or emergent Goliath, which is what you're talking about, which is a sort of global scale techno capitalism that runs almost like an ant hive or a hive mind mm -hmm. um, under a, a set of axiomatics and a set of constructs of how it goes about doing sense making and choice making and delivering on agency. Mm -hmm. um, we can drill down anywhere you'd like, but the good news is it seems quite likely that we can, in fact, develop a substantially more effective collective intelligence. 
um, orders of magnitude, like many, like 10 orders of magnitude more than the Blue Church, uh, that this is more than adequate to deal with the problem of physical complexity and anthrocomplexity um, radically outcompetes Leviathan. Um, hmm. However, may not be adequate to deal with the problem of techno complexity. Right. Okay. So maybe we can do a little bit more syncing up of vocabularies. I, I thought that was all really interesting, and, and we should we should continue to drill down on that. But I'm thinking I was. It's occurring to me now. Maybe I was a little bit rude in not giving you a little short spiel about myself because you have no idea what you've stepped into and who's listening and who I am. Even so, without Your going accent, on about my accent, is substantially less English than I expected it would be. It's less what, English. What's that? Less British. Uh, but the only information I have from you is associated with the UK. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. So you're probably confused and disoriented. So I should tell you, uh, yeah, I'm an American. I uh, moved here for a, I'm, I'm a professor here. Uh, so I moved here for an academic job and I've been here for like five years. Um, but so yeah, I'm like a, by, by profession, I'm a pretty traditional uh, political scientist. I do mostly quantitative statistical research. Um, but I've long been in, interested in questions of political theory. And basically, I mean, without going on about my whole story, I, um, I basically just academia is, is not what I uh, hoped it would be. <laughs> and uh, I'm just really bored basically. And uh, huh. I'm looking for something, I'm, you know, I'm looking for something much, much better than, than what academia can offer. So I've basically just turned to the internet and I'm just kind of going wild, like blogging and having these conversations with whoever I can uh, trick huh. into meeting me on, on, in the chat rooms. So, so this um, is in fact a, an example of the conversation we were just having. What, what do you mean? Well, you, you've you've identified that one of the primary organs of sense speaking the blue church, i.e., academia, right, is so inadequate that even though you are relatively present within the center of it, you are nonetheless choosing to spend your time in an emergent collective intelligence, i.e., the internet. That's right. Um, and one might say that there are particular reasons why that makes sense to you. Yes, for sure. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's kind of where I'm at, and. Um, so I should tell you a little bit also about my the kind of the milieu in which I do my blogging and and these live streams and um it, how should I put this we it's often I'm often kind of called or lumped in with people known as kind of accelerationists uh, uh, so I'll tell you a little bit about the just kind of very broadly how how I'm inclined to see things and this will probably make a little bit more sense out of the question that I originally posed to you and so the way that I tend to see it with a lot of the people who I write with and talk with is that basically uh, modernity was was a real turning point. And, and specifically what happens at the turning point of modernity is that capitalism is kind of this um, uh, superhuman or, you know, extra human force that kind of uh, gets out of the bag, basically. So you can think of most of pre-modernity as this attempt by humans to kind of uh, contain or, or to lock down the explosive and, and, and quite brutal um, implications of intelligence itself, you know, the, the production of intelligence, you know, um, most of, like a lot of, you know, early pre-modern uh, religious teachings uh, can, can be kind of interpreted as, you know, be careful what you do with intelligence, because if you let the, if you, if you let it out of the bag too recklessly, um, you know, you're going to, you're going to regret it. And so we tend to see modernity as kind of the point at which, well, that kind of happened and intelligence was escaped. It's, it escaped its box and and initiated this kind of recursive explosive process that you know we we uh begins with you know industrialization and we're now kind of 
continuing to live through, especially with, you know, the approach of, you know, uh, self-improving artificial intelligence and all of this. So in that, in that light, um, myself and a lot of people I talk with are inclined to see the increasing social complexity that you talk about um, as this kind of, yeah, this kind of loosely organized uh, super intelligence, this kind of inhuman or non-human super intelligence that is um, basically now, uh, now so great, or, or it operates at such a high level of, it's able to integrate so much more information than any of us are as mere, you know, biological entities, um, that basically it has its own purposes, that capitalism has its own purposes, which is the abstract increase of intelligence itself. Um, and, and what modernity looks like is this, this abstract process in which, um, intelligence is increasing itself and anything that gets in the way of intelligence increasing itself, uh, basically gets, will, will just be destroyed and kind of, and kind of killed off as, as, as dead weight. Um, and so in, in that view, um, a lot of what you're saying still, I mean, what you just said was very compelling. Um, but it's hard for me to, it's hard. So I'm, I'm inclined to see like a lot of the blue church stuff as basically, uh, quite meek attempts of human beings to basically kind of pull people's heartstrings and push the buttons of, of, you know, moral intuitions to basically uh, hang on as long as they can in a kind of increasing uh, intelligence scenario where, you know, they're increasingly obsolete. So it's like this disingenuous game to basically um, control what resources they can in kind of their, their, their last gasping breaths of, you know, their agency being, uh, being kind of taken over. So that's just a little bit about my, my kind of, uh, the larger perspective that I'm bringing to the table, but ah, I'm not, okay. I'm not necessarily wedded to that. Just giving you, giving you that as background. So let me, let me test some, um, let me ask some, some questions. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, does your ontology, it sounded to me, and I think this is probably wrong, but it sounded to me like your ontology consists of two ontological objects. Hmm. Um, biological human beings and a single kind of superintelligence known as techno-capitalism. Is that an accurate statement? No, I don't think I, I, I see what you're, I see what you're thinking. Um, I could, I could probably clarify better in saying that um, it's more like there is abstract intelligence as this kind of alien, uh, alien seed at, 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 at the beginning of, of the universe or something like that, um, which then, you know, manifests itself, uh, in this, in this long, uh, developmental process in which biological humans are one phase of it. And then biological humans who create capitalism are a kind of higher phase of it. But really this is one process. Uh, this is one long process of intelligence, uh, basically increasing itself is what is, is what it looks like. And so there for like part of human history, we could get away with the with the framework that we were in control, you know, so long as intelligence, so long as collective intelligence was relatively uh, constrained be beneath a certain threshold. You know, the, these this language that we we are so inclined to use where, you know, we are looking at the at the territory and we are making these maps and we are kind of making plans from from point A to point B and how we want to guide um, our future. That kind of worked uh, for a, for a little while so long as the forces were relatively weak. Uh, but once, once abstract in intelligence gets out of our box, um, then it's like, 
um, something else, it, something else is, is, is emerging. That's, that's beyond our biological containers, but it's not necessarily, um, I'm, I'm not necessarily drawing like a, a, a really important hard distinction between our biological containers and, and whatever that is. I don't know if that's useful distinction or not. Um, okay. So let me see if I can try a few different things. Um, one is I I'm noticing that I don't have any sense of there being a point where there was a, a real notion that individual biologically individual human beings had any strong sense of high order autonomy mm. outside of some kind of larger context. So whether it is a sense of real significant low order autonomy, say for example, the, uh, during high Christendom, um, where there was a sense of there being a divine plan that was just what, what it was, hmm. or whether it's the, simply the, the real recognition that, say, for example, your family has significant influence over what you do in life, and it is larger than you, um, and of course, beyond your family, many, many other kinds of nested and um, non-nested forms of things that are larger than you that impose upon your particular agency. Hmm. Um, I would imagine that it is a rare human, a handful, who have ever had any real sense of any meaningful degree of actual agency in the world that was larger than the context in which they found themselves. And I would say that most of them were probably psychotic. Ma manic. Okay. Is, I mean. sure. okay. um, so let's see, we can go to a deeper level. So, so then I would say that the ontology that I'm, I'm working with hmm. is one that is actually, I, I, I largely accept the basic premise that there is, that this uh, this notion of intelligence is real. Um, I think we'll we'll discover that we'll have some very interesting conversations about what it is, mm. um, and that the characteristics of this thing, intelligence, are well, quite specifically, these this is the thing that gives rise to curves that are super linear, mm -hmm. uh, and therefore it is sort of only a matter of time before those characteristics take over from linear and sublinear characteristics and become the primary drivers in any kind of system that has intelligence. Um, that's a, a way of saying largely what you just said. Yeah, I got you. Um, however, the specific system design, to use that kind of language, that gives rise to a particular level of intelligence, I think is the area that I have the most inquiry into. Okay. That my proposition is that the system design... So, I would, I would say that the blue church is a particular system design that okay. gives rise to a certain level of collective intelligence. Um, I would say that, say, for example, the Chinese People's Army is a system design that gives access to a certain level of collective intelligence. You and I in collaboration right now are a system design that gives rise to a certain level of potential collective intelligence. Um, and then global techno-capitalism is a system design that gives rise to a certain level of collective intelligence. And I'm, I'm now separating out a particular system design from the large arc of the attractor of what we might call maximum intelligence that we might see as being that which is pulling and, and kind of creating an evolutionary uh, pull for all the various systems designs that are in competition with each other. Um, so in that context, where I, the way I've sort of I personally have described history is that there was for a long period of time a relatively small amount of the intelligence attractor 
in the context of the uh, strictly thermodynamic attractor and uh, the dissipative structure attractor that is characteristic of evolution, biological evolution. Hmm. Um, but over time, because of the intrinsic higher than super, super linear characteristics of the intelligence attractor, it has played a larger and larger role, the famous exponential curve. And so we, we are now poised in a position where the combined forces of the thermodynamic and the evolutionary attractors are beginning to lose uh, their sway over the resources of the world in favor of some configuration which is more fully in alignment with the dynamics of the intelligence attractor. Okay, that's that's fascinating. So you're drawing a distinction between the evolutionary attractor and the intelligence attractor because I would have thought of those as basically the same thing. So maybe you could speak more to that. It's uh, sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so the evolutionary attractor is dominated by the necessity of seeking um, maximally efficient energetic processing systems and has episodic access to the uh, the innovative capacities of the intelligence attractor on a playing field that is still dominated by uh, energetic dynamics. So, okay. Okay. So that's basically it. Uh, it's it's uh, it's so sort that, of, that, that that explains a little bit of the the friction, I guess, in in our ontologies then, because but that that's very good. That that's useful because I I was thinking more along the lines that in to use your ontology, I think of evolution as a kind of abstract system design that is itself a kind of intelligence because it's doing something it's in, it's processing information um, and it's doing something, but we as humans don't know where we don't know exactly what it's doing. We don't know where it's going. Right. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. But, but so this is, let me so re, 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 repeat what I said using the, the, the now shared language. It's doing two things. Um, it is processing information. And it is processing energy. And the energetic processing is the dominant characteristic of the evolutionary attractor. And the information processing is a secondary characteristic. So this is why we talk about the thing, uh, you know, survival of the fittest or a, a selection event is a selection event at the level of energetics and at the level of information replication. Uh, so you have to survive and then you have to reproduce. Mm -hmm. And since most of the problematics that are resolved by biologically evolved systems have to do with competition for scarce energetic resources, the primary selection event for information processing has been biased towards effectiveness and efficiency as opposed to generativity. Okay. I'll give you an example. Uh, Bletchley Park. Mm -hmm. So in Bletchley Park, the exigencies of the energetic conflict overrode the information processing aspirations of Turing. So hmm. Turing had, as, as a representative of somebody who's operating at a very high level in the intelligence domain, had to subordinate the what may have been a dramatically, can you imagine what would have happened if the resources of Bletchley Park, if Turing had been able to fully coordinate the allocation of those resources? But he couldn't because he was operating in a context which is actually designed very much like your sort of modern pre-modernity, post-modernity metaphor. He was operating in a system which was still intrinsically designed around 
preservation of energetic resources and local selective advantages in an energetic conflict. Hmm. So it used uh, innovation, it used intelligence, but it used intelligence as opposed to being driven by intelligence first. Hmm. So do you agree with kind of a, a, a proposition I was Im- alluding to implicitly, which is that capitalism is a kind of global force that is incre- is, is shifting uh, the, the, the distribution of, of selection pressure it, towards intelligence? Do you say yeah. that or no? I do. Right. And so and do then- you think that the blue church is kind of this it's kind of this like union of humans trying to basically kind of hold up this, this um, agreement to, to, to select for things other than intelligence against the increasingly strong uh, selection pressures of capitalism. Oh, that's neat. Um, I hadn't really thought about it in that fashion. And I wouldn't say that it was other than intelligence, but I would say in addition to, so okay. the blue the blue church is a uh, some sort of not monomaniacal in its uh, optimization efforts, um, or at least it's not monomaniacal against pure intelligence. Whereas, as you're saying, capitalism may in fact be monomaniacally optimizing for a particular kind of intelligence. So then, this is where maybe I break with the with, with the narrative. Um, it is my considered perspective that as a systems design and as an intent, capitalism is optimizing for the wrong kind of intelligence, which is to say the kind that is less intelligent and um, is a relatively inefficient and in fact intrinsically self-terminating systems design. So it is something that needs to be considered and is in fact something that we find ourselves in in conflict with. Um, But I see no reason, I have actually have very strong reasons to believe that it is not, um, what, how do we say this right? There's a term that we used to use, um, somehow godlike in power. Mm. So that's interesting. I mean, that I, I, it definitely flatters my priors uh, and, and moral intuitions for sure. But I, I am curious, maybe you could say more about how, like, how do you substantiate a, a, a reference to a superior form of intelligence that is that that you could argue is is superior to that which is being selected by the most intelligent system we've ever had. Do you know what I mean? Um, actually, I don't know why that's a confusing question. So maybe say it again. It seems sure. obvious to me. So I want to I want to see what I'm missing. Sure. So I too want to think. It's it sure seems to me also that capitalism is selects for a particular kind of intelligence. And as a system as a whole, it's quite irrational and lacking in, in another kind of intelligence from another perspective, obviously. Uh, so I'm on board with that. But then what I try to, I try to think that through. And if capitalism is this kind of collective superintelligence over and above all of our heads and it capitalism, you know, global price, global price system integrates more like global capitalism knows more about what we want than we do in some sense. Precisely, it's, it's, it's kind of insane brutality is in some sense precisely that it, it, it's able to uh, kind of measure and allocate and distribute resources in line with the sum total of human desires in a way that is actually more effective and more intelligent than any of us could, could create, you know, um, 
you know, through like purposeful designed like planning programs. Mm-hmm. And so it seems to me that it's very difficult to say that there exists some other standard of, of that, that there's some other form of intelligence uh, that we could point to that, that would be like more intelligent than whatever it is. Capitalism is, is telling us uh, uh, should come next. Oh, okay. Yeah. Does that okay. Make, so that, that makes that sense. Seems- it, it it makes sense, and it, it still strikes me as obvious. So let's actually walk through it a little bit. Okay. Um, let me think. Hmm. Let's see how do we do this right? Um, let me try one path. I don't think it's going to work, but it might kind of help kind of move us forward a little bit. Go for it. That has to do with the ability to actually take. We can actually look at the system design of capitalism. We can look at it at its intrinsic dynamics, mm-hmm. and therefore we can actually model the uh, the kind of processes that it's capable of operating in, and we can understand what the boundary conditions are um, because we can model it, and so then we can then begin to say, okay, well, given that, what are the what are redesigns that may in fact give rise to a higher order? And now it may not be actual. So, ah, ontological proposition, possible, probable, actual. So there's a distinction. And what we can take a look at is say, oh, there's a way of identifying that the possible intelligence of capitalism is X. The actual intelligence of capitalism is something smaller than X, but actually relatively close to X. Can we design a form of collective intelligence where the possible intelligence is larger than X and that the actual intelligence is able to move from zero to larger than X um, in the context of capitalism? So we can, we can sort of, first of all, we can actually do that and recognize that the same exact relationship. Ah, cool. Let's use the metaphor of the previous discussion of Bletchley Park. Capitalism is Bletchley Park. This is sort of the whole point. This is the issue. Um, it is a systems architecture which was originated in a context of fundamentally trying to solve the problem of energetic resource scarcity, utilizing bounded intelligence as a mechanism. So it endeavors to constantly control. It's like modern, it's, it's say, pre-modernity to modernity. Modernity took the, tried to take the notion of intelligence and put it in a control structure. And use the control structure to, to give act to selective advantage by getting access to the innovative capacity of intelligence, but in the context of a control structure. It's like a steam engine or a train. Exact right metaphor. Okay. And so what it does is it says, okay, uh, Feynman and Oppenheimer get together and work on the Manhattan Project. But we, the military political class, are in charge. We control the purse strings. We control the resources. We control the domain. And don't go any further than what the boundary conditions are, smart, smarty pants. And don't go any faster than you can go. Bletchley Park is the same thing. Google is the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, how do we enable the innovative capacity of human intelligence in various kinds of collective structures to be innovative, but only when it is, in fact, doing so under the constraints that capitalism itself sets. In this case, for example, it has to actually have a high-quality return on investment. Um, Otherwise, it it throws an error. It cannot actually be perceived as a valid use of intelligence in the context of capitalism. We see things like, for example, in the cryptocurrency space, we're starting to see the recognition of a blind spot 
in the form of intelligence, the sense-making and choice-making capacities that describe the total sovereignty, the geometric sovereignty of capitalism. And we're beginning to notice that there's, in fact, an abstraction layer, that capitalism is an instantiation of that abstraction layer. We can identify that abstraction layer, and then we can actually use principle design to construct a form of collective intelligence, which is categorically superior to capitalism. And it's actually pretty straightforward. We just invert the relationship. Please tell me more about that. Sounds good. <laughs> yeah. So, so let me just, I'll, I'll kind of drop it again into a narrative. So um, let's take, let's actually take the actual narrative of industrial capitalism in the United States as the history of a series of companies. And let's take a company as a, at the time, state-of-the-art effort to form an effective collective intelligence in the context of, the, of what was happening then. And so you're going to move from sort of Carnegie Steel to the Ford Motor Company to IBM, Xerox Hewlett-Packard, Microsoft, Google. And this is our, our uh, phylogenetic tree of evolution. Okay. Mm -hmm. And we notice certain things in this characteristic shift. Um, one is those things that are further down the tree are vastly more capable of effective collective intelligence than those things that are earlier in the tree. Mm -hmm. So by any measure, if I take the total number of human beings collaborating in the space of Google, and I measure the effective collective intelligence of that total number and compare that to the total number of the collective intelligence of all the people who are employees by Ford Motor Company, the number is lots, lots higher. Right. Obviously, most people employed in Ford Motor Company were putting widgets together by hand. So their effective collective intelligence was purely actuary uh, in terms of actuation, so almost nil. It's a classic blue church construct. Um, so that's one piece. The second piece is then we can, okay, so this, so this is actually part of the arc that you're talking about. Cool. And this is a story where capitalism is endeavoring to constantly evolve our effective collective intelligence into increasingly um, actually intel collectively intelligent um, constructs, right. machines, that yeah. then collaborate with each other in larger schemes that are, in fact, even more collectively intelligent. So then we take a look at the actual characteristics of what that evolutionary dynamic looks like. And what we notice is a, an increasing shift from a... Uh, an organizational and a human resources basis towards a certain kind of relationship between humans and the kinds of humans who enter into those relationships, which, which is to say you want a more, a flatter, you want a vastly more abundance oriented. We're going to have to kind of open up that can of worms of what that set of concepts means, uh, but a different structure of motivation and orientation direction and a different topology of the organizational framework which is to say more driven by agency at the edge and in collaborative groups and less driven by top-down command and control okay. i could say by the way that, that that apple under jobs and tesla under musk perhaps represent a different phylogenetic tree a much more much more top-down driven but still highly optimized kind of construct that has certain intelligence capabilities for sure that's, that's fascinating, Jordan. Now, the question, one question I have, though, is do you see that as something that we primarily have to engineer as, you know, thinking, reflective, creative agents operating on social reality? Or is what you just described in, in the last part, is that endogenous to capitalism, almost in a kind of 
um, Marxian uh, eschatology in which capitalism at a certain point starts to uh, follow these kind of flattening out dynamics that you just described? Um, well, I'm afraid I, I can't answer anything but both. Um, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, it is in fact the actual creative intelligence and the actuating activity of discrete human beings that are summed in some way and oriented directed in some way that we would call capitalism. Um, so right. if nobody, if, if, if all people chose to think nothing, capitalism would do nothing. There's nothing right. to it besides the collective activity of people. Yeah. Okay. Um, what it is, is it's, it, it's a mechanism for orienting people towards what they should be thinking about, how they should be going about doing it, and then enabling scale larger than N coordination between people. And in fact, scale larger than N coordination between scale larger than N groups. So capitalism is a systems architecture that enables the formation of groups of people who coordinate with each other and that groups coordinate with groups and that allows orientation where individuals can identify what role they should be playing and what relationships they should form in these possible coordination structures. Okay. Right. Um, and so by being that it produces a larger scale, effective collective intelligence. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. And so you think that we're in this kind of uh, transitional moment right now, is that right? Where, yeah. yeah, the blue church is giving way to a, a new kind of dynamic in which the, the central features are, what did you say before? A kind of flattening and a kind of, um, uh, uh, post scarcity, a, a situation of abundance. Was there something else that's key in there? Oh, there's a lot. <laughs> what are the what uh, are the main what are, what are the main features or characteristics of of the uh, of this transition? Then other other than those. So let me let me actually slow down. Then so sure. what I was talking about was what I perceive as being uh, the characteristics of the particular attractor that I was talking about in that phylogenetic tree that led to Google. Um to slow down and talk about what's happening in this transition, there is a space that is opening up for experimentations in many different forms of collective intelligence that are more effective than the blue church architectures. Okay. Um, there are probably many, many, like, I don't know exactly how, number, how many there are variations on this theme. Sure. Um, even all we have to do is look at, for example, the distinct characteristics that are showing up in just the blockchain space as efforts to explore different kinds of collective intelligence structure. Um, I mean, there's at least three and maybe dozens that are currently being explored. It's not clear which of those have any real uh, stability. And obviously it's, it's one thing to design something. It's another thing for, to achieve homeostatic equilibrium. Um, the question is, so in, in this context, actually Sorry, let me back up even further. I have basically identified in my own mind the way I think about it at kind of a strategic level mm -hmm. is three time time frames. There's the exiting the blue church. So there's kind of an exiting legacy, which largely has to do with at a strategic level, largely has to do with avoiding catastrophic effects as the old system gives way. Then there's the transition. Then there's the post-transition. Hmm. Uh, my my considered assessment right now is that it is not necessarily the case that the transition and the post-transition are the same. Um, I, I imagine, 
and I can use a number of different models to explain why I imagine, but I imagine that there is room for, call it one more um, bite at collective intelligences that are, say, still a hybrid mix between uh, scarcity and abundance, fundamental characteristics. Right, okay. Uh, and then we, we do or do not transition, and if we do transition, then you just have to look at what are the, the uh, stable states that live on the other side of some kind of transition, and there's only a small number. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that definitely syncs up with my observations in academia right now. You definitely get this impression that there, in academia, there are a lot of initiatives where they seem to be trying really hard to uh, n- navigate this transition by taking on kind of like half-assed uh, gestures towards, you know, abundance and, uh, and, and flattening, but really they're, yeah, hmm. they don't work so well. <laughs> yeah, this is right. And, and, and I think it, it has to do with, um, I think, uh, this is where I kind of am right now. Uh-huh. The, I've basically broken it up into two kinds of games. I call it game A and game B just to make it sort of neutral. Um, game e, game A is the game that, in, in the story that I'm telling, we've sort of been playing um, maybe from the dawn of civilization or perhaps from the dawn of evolution. Uh, but it's essentially characterized by um, winning rivalrous game-theoretic games. So assuming that there will be a loser in the game and constructing strategic systems to achieve not being the loser. Right. Um, and there's many different elements that make up that. So there's the socio-technical layer, socio-technical systems that are constructed both about axiomatics of rivalrous game theory and about effective strategy in the context of those axiomatics. Mm-hmm. Um, there are also individual uh, psycho-emotional axiomatics and strategies. And so you have both the the individual and the collective coordinations that are in relationship with each other that give rise. So if I have a um, highly win-lose optimized individual entering into a relatively win-win optimized socio-technical environment, it won't work. and if I have a highly abundance mindset individual entering into a win-lose socio-technical infrastructure, it also tends not to work. They will show up as sort of, a, let's say, a Turing, as an example, right. at best, at best. Um, Jim Morrison is another good example. Okay. Um, yeah. So there's a kind of an eye of a needle problem, which is there has to be a transition from a, a world that is running human beings who have developmentally been operating in a scarcity environment. So they have a scarcity, literally a scarcity biology, a scarcity emotional construct, a scarcity psychological construct, and scarcity habits, scarcity frameworks that are running assumptions and cognitive bias around scarcity models. Mm-hmm. And that is, in fact, relatively adaptive and fit because they are also running within a socio-technical environment, which is axiomatically premised on the same set of notions. And, of course, within a natural environment, the energetically scarce fitness landscape that is the driver for both of those right so that's reality um hard bitten tough hard-nosed sort of conservative mindset reality and then on the other side you have what might be a holistic attractor which is actually part of so the transition is a whole whole systems transition including all three of those different 
components. So it's a socio-technical transition as well as a cultural transition and a shift in the actual human beings that are moving into that new context. Okay, fascinating. So it, you do have a kind of post-capitalist narrative then because you're, you're really kind of describing a, uh, a, a vision in which people are holistic and uh, it's much more cooperative. It's much more uh, coherent, you could say. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be less intensely based on exploitation and um, competition. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and I, and I would say this both in a positive and negative direction, which is that the, the negative direction is that all other scenarios are inexorably self-terminating in a relatively short time. Um, so if you kind of look at it in terms of a possibility space of future paths, the basic pruning rules prune all of those paths away. So the only available paths are paths that, have the, that look like what you're just describing. Um, and then from a positive direction, there are very strong reasons to believe that A, these are very well within the domain of what human beings can be, human nature. We're not talking about changing human nature. We're just talking about shifting the state variables within the phase space of human nature. And that there is a direct collaboration between cultural and socio-technical constructs that are in alignment with that same set of human states so that they are mutually co-evolving. And then finally, the most positive, the best news is that, and this happens to be fundamentally the most fully optimized for maximal intelligence that can be achieved in principle. Hmm. So it's the way you actually win the intelligence game. Okay, that's fascinating. I'm, I'm definitely going to have to just sleep on that. But that's really, really interesting. So in your view, what if one is attracted to that picture that you just painted, uh, you know, what is the uh, constructive available pathways to living, breathing human beings today that you think uh, can accelerate the transition into that, to that state? Mm. Um, there's actually many. So I've noticed at least kind of three basic domains that, that people seem to be entering into. Um, and, and this is not in any particular order, but I'll just sort of start my mind can't help but organize things along some framework. Um, the first is at the individual level. So as I mentioned, the, the context in which we have developed differentially for different people, obviously, um, gives rise to a certain individuation, a certain level or kind of sovereignty. Um, in order to be able to actually play the new game, game B, you have to upgrade your capacities. Hmm. Uh, usually, almost everyone. I've never met anyone who hasn't had to upgrade their capacities. Um, and I've never met anyone who's sort of so fully upgraded that they're sort of ready to play all the way. Like we're all kind of still working really hard to basically be able to play some of the time. Um, although I have definitely met people who are quite differential. So this includes things like really rather studiously addressing any form of developmental or emotional uh, traumas that are short-circuiting your capacity to participate in a fully sovereign fashion. Um, you know, if you have triggers or defense mechanisms, uh, fix them. Hangups. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and these are, this is real work. This is non-trivial. Sure. Um, yeah. Secondarily, and this is, by the way, usually in this order, because the second one is going to be your cognitive frameworks. 
Um, you're familiar with, uh, I think his name's Jonathan Haight? Sure, yeah. Yeah, so the elephant and the writer metaphor? That's right. Uh, don't take your cognitive frameworks too seriously. You'll find that if you shift certain emotional traumas, things that seem so obviously true and, and, and uh, inarguable fade like mists. Because at the end of the day, our cognitive frameworks are sitting on top of an emotional psychological framework or a, a foundation and shifts at the base level implies shifts at the surface level. Uh, which is not to say, by the way, that uh, you say geometry turns out to be false if you learn how to solve your problems with attachment. Um, but for example, economics will shift for you, for sure. Mm. Um, and you'll actually be able to vastly more fluidly be able to, to load and unload different frameworks and be able to use tools as tools as opposed to use them as um, paradigms or as ideologies. And mm -hmm. so particularly shifting away from anything that is attracted to an ideological mindset, which of course is just an externalized version of reason acting as a defense mechanism. So personal, that's all very powerful. The second is then relational. Um, and I mean this again, kind of in the same order, which is really begin to become increasingly skillful of understanding precisely how you go about entering into relationships with other people. Um, at actually a body level, where exactly are your various body hangups, emotional traumas, psychological frameworks, bad habits, um, driving, and where you're actually entering into skillful relationship, which is at least at the level that you would like it to be when you're considering it thoughtfully. Um, and then begin to get better at it. So practice that. And practice doing things like having very high integrity and the ability to communicate clearly and the ability to listen well you know, basic communications protocol cleanliness, uh, because this is the basic framework. So the, the material out of which this future system is based is made up of human beings who've achieved a certain level of sovereignty over themselves and have achieved a capacity to enter into skillful relationships with each other on the basis of integrity and high quality communication. Hmm. Hmm. And this, by the way, is principled. I can, I can actually describe almost at a mathematical level why that is the basis of the maximum possible collaborative intelligence. Now, that's, that's all very well put. I'm thinking, though, that there has to be something else because everything you just said could be used to describe a lot of, you know, blue church operatives, right? I mean... Oh, heavens no. <laughs> no? You don't, no? You don't think that there you could fulfill the criteria that you just laid out? And be, I, I would say that if you were currently alive today and you are still a blue church operative, you are strictly delusional. And how, how, what uh, portion of the population would you estimate that to be, though? Quite high, right? Oh, yes, most. 85%. Well, of people who live in the West, probably uh -huh. on the order of 95%. Right. So, so are you saying that in your model – the more people do all of those things you just described intrinsically, the more the, the, the social system will uh, transition to the alternative post-capitalist state. Is that, is that your view? That is true. Yes. So, so my question or. However, you know, however early, there, are, uh, there are other things that, that if maybe if we talk about them might make it a little bit more clear. Okay. All I was going to say was that I, it, one could imagine people doing all of those things and currently existing blue church uh, institutions uh, will 
you know, happily integrate those those human updates as better <laughs> better workers, you know? My in my experience, the answer is very much the opposite. Okay. Um, you may be able to run a simulation. In fact, I would recommend that you do if you continue to decide to stay employed inside the blue church, which increasingly you don't need to, but to the degree which you do, run an emulator where you are showing up as a blue church functionary. But I would say with a very high degree of confidence, like here, like 93%, that the blue church will absolutely not have any desire, capacity, or even willingness to integrate a individual who's beginning to move in the process of sovereignty. Yeah, you know it's funny you say that, Jordan, because I'm I'm actually right now in the process of getting starting to get into trouble, uh, and I'm not even really doing anything that extreme at all. It's like just from doing these live streams and just kind of speaking uh, casually. <laughs> I'm, I'm I already have like an ethics investigation on me. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I'm uh, yeah, seriously, and so it's like, I guess I see what you're saying that like although the criteria that you described are relatively straightforward, you know, be honest, work your shit out. Um, to the degree you actually do those things, it's so relatively rare that you actually quite, you do become intrinsically a kind of problem for blue church status quo institutions. Is that, that's what you mean? Yeah, absolutely. There's no question. There's almost nothing more dangerous. And the, even though the individuals, the human beings who are involved may have a different set of like evaluations of what that means, the institutional structure will intrinsically receive it as an infection. Or an opportunity for exploitation. So you might find yourself shunted into like a, a Google X or a DARPA kind of a place where you can be um, exploited as a game B resource node. But you're intrinsically uh, corrosive to the, uh, the structures, of, particularly of late stage Blue Church. You might, you might still be able to fit into kind of like a high tech startup company as a co-founder. Um, but even then you'll probably find that within a very short amount of time, the entire team will be like, fuck it. I don't want to take VC money and go public, but that's the stupidest thing imaginable. We should just do an ICO and stay flat and just be the 10 of us. Right. Um, and that's just showing up, right? This is just, this is as people are beginning to realize that, that you can't actually play the game at the right level in the context of anything that is vaguely of a blue church structure. You get people beginning to try to figure out how do, how do I play a new game? And, That's the third piece. So the first is become a person. The second is become skillful in forming these relationships and communications protocols. Then the third is, in fact, through a combination of of discernment and curiosity, begin to actually form the new kinds of collective intelligences. Start having the right conversations, listen to the right people, Listen to who's who's good at orienting you to the right people, and then begin to sense in yourself, building your own level of personal intelligence in a much larger way because you've done the work. What are the right kinds of relationships? How do I begin to move in in more generative directions for myself that happen to be intrinsically win-win? How do I find out ways to do that? Okay, yeah, that's that's fascinating, and I mean, I think implicitly, I'm I'm very much living through precisely this kind of model that that you're describing obviously not in the language that you're using because i've only you know come across your work recently but it just so ha- it is just kind of interesting it just so happens that in my actual moment in my own life i'm i'm really at the brink of uh serious kind of strategic reflection on on these matters mm. and so i'm not just you know talking about myself for the selfish reasons of you know wanting to talk about myself but i'm actually 
not a bad example to kind of use to, to work out some of these ideas. Um, uh, because, you know, one question that immediately comes to my, comes to my mind is like, so right now, I mean, I'm, I'm burning a lot of brain power thinking about how long I'm going to be able to stay in academia. I mean, I have a, I'm, I'm basically tenured already. I'm the British ver- the version of tenured. So I could stay here as long as I want. I, I could be in, a, I probably, um, unless I did something really bad or this ethics investigation were to get like really out of hand somehow. Um, it'd be hard for them to fire me, I think. Um, but I'm, I'm really starting to think like, how long should I really stay in here? Like, in other words, I'm thinking about jumping ship. I don't know exactly for what. Um, I think I could probably do some sort of, I could probably do a bunch of things, whatever, without talking <laughs> about that too much. I'm thinking about jumping ship. And it's a very, it's a very interesting kind of case study for the, you, the, what you said about discernment, you know, because how does one, how does one discern when one is making a, a good, intelligent, ethically aligned decision to defect from status quo institutions. How does one discern that from just being lazy and not being able to hack it and uh, quitting because it's too hard? Do you know what I mean? Mm. That's a hard, that's a question of discernment that I think a lot of people struggle with. And it's kind of the one I'm struggling with at the moment because I'm sort of like, I, I, I'm, I'm slow to quit academia because I'm a little proud, you know, like I don't want to feel like I'm quitting. I don't want to feel like I can't handle it. And I have a, I have a strong, you know, uh, tolerance for pain and suffering. I'm, I'm a Catholic. And so I'm kind of like, stick mm. it out, just, just stick it out. Don't be, don't be lazy. Don't quit. But then I'm like, no, actually it's, it would be better in every way for me to like ditch these chains and just go full blast on blogging, doing this kind of stuff and whatever, and then just find another way to make money. If I want to be an intellectual, that is, you know. So I, I have for myself, formulated an answer to that question. I struggled with that same question when I began this journey. Um, This is language that I haven't refined in a long time, so it's a little bit rough, but if you would like, I'll share it with you. Sure, please. So, and and you you used the word Catholic reminded me of it. Hmm. So I've noticed, or at least I noticed in my life, that there seem to be two very distinct ways of going about trying to make that kind of distinction, that, cho- that kind of choice, that question of discernment. Well, one I'll call judgment, the other I'll call discernment, just to put, give them different names. Mm-hmm. So judgment appears to me to be something along the lines of endeavoring to engage in an analytical process against some kind of schema and locate a choice inside that schema. So a simple one might be something like, Don't touch hot things. And so then all you have to do is you have to engage in an assessment of the environment. And when you identify something as hot, you access the schema. The schema has a very simple rule. Don't touch hot things. Is this thing hot? Yes, therefore don't touch. So you're able to run a very effective code that has states and it has actions associated with those states. And your job is only to be able to, with high fidelity, evaluate states and apply actions. Um, I might call this a moral schema, okay. um, hence the reference to Catholicism. Now, you run into conundrums in this place where either the state is difficult to identify because maybe you have a very large number of distinct states that are perhaps entering into relationships that are paradoxical. They lead to different mm-hmm. conclusions of what actions should be taken. Or is in fact, novel, that the schema doesn't include anything that is like this. Um, and if your mind has been 
if your choice making has been constructed around optimizing for these kinds of schemas, you may find yourself quite challenged in dealing with truly novel situations. Mm-hmm. Sort of become optimized for computation in moral space, but you haven't learned how to actually address. You've kind of ameliorated the ambient skill of dealing with novelty. This, by the way, is something that happens in evolutionary theory a lot. Like organisms that are optimized for what's called um, hill climbing, right? Evolutionary Often, traps. Evolutionary traps. So this is a sort of an evolutionary trap in a moral schema. The other kind um, has to do with with essentially generating raw capacity to make good choices in an arbitrarily larger number of diverse contexts. So bizarrely enough, the answer to the question in the, in the second category is something, well, let's put it this way. In the first category, a, a good choice is something like a choice that accurately assesses what's going on in reality and well deploys the right schema. In the second category, a good choice is the kind of choice that a good person makes. So it's to be able to, to do this kind of discernment actually means become a good person, which means things like build embodied wisdom. You know, put yourself into places where you actually make hard choices so you have a sense of what it feels like to make a good choice in the context of hard choices. Become very aware of how your total sensory modalities go about actually making sense of your total environment. If you, if you find that you tend to bias towards analytic methodologies, notice where you're maybe not listening to what would be called, say, your gut, which is a non-trivial information processing mechanism associated with, with somatic survival for billions of years, much older than your rational neocortex. Notice where you find yourself engaging in self-tyranny, where you don't actually allow yourself to be in personal integrity, where all the different aspects of yourself are able to speak their particular perspectives openly and honestly and are listened to completely before decisions are made. Um, because if you don't do that, then if you make a choice, the parts of you that weren't listened to will be resentful and they will tend to take it out on you post facto. <laughs> so, this is, so, so the second case is about building character and building capacity to become skillful in choice-making in its raw sense. And of course, as you do that, you will notice that you'll become less and less concerned with the quality of the choices that you're making because you're just really good at that as a fundamental capacity. Now, let me just embed that in a larger narrative. When When the environment is relatively static, the former kind of approach can actually be more effective than the latter kind. Like I said, if the universe consists only of objects that are hot and objects that are not hot and only touch and not touch, then the schema don't touch hot things is actually very, very efficient. And if you optimize for that, you can kick ass. Right. However, as the complexity of the environment grows, and particularly as the novelty in the environment grows, if the, if the environment is changing, then categorically the second approach is more adaptive. Right. That's interesting. Yeah, I never really thought about that exactly, but you could kind of you could kind of advance the proposition that with the acceleration of social and technological life, that actually increases the payoffs to a strategy based on strong character. Yep. That's interesting. No question. Yeah, that's interesting. This is actually another way of saying the basic story that I've been telling throughout this conversation that once you grasp what that means and sort of extrapolate it in terms of its individual and relational and social consequences, you've identified what the 
singularity attractor is in terms of maximum intelligence. That's fascinating, and and also I should add, uh, useful for my own for my own decision making. So thank you for that, Jordan. So You're are welcome. you operating on a kind of model? Are you imagining a model uh, at the social scale? That is, that's a kind of threshold model. Like you imagine when this stuff becomes sufficiently popular, you'll see cascades of this kind of behavior, and and that would so that the phase transition would be kind of slow and slow, and then all of a sudden abrupt in a kind of cascade dynamic. Is that how you imagine it, or no? I- I have my hot, my my uh, my Bayesian priors have their highest confidence on that model, yeah. but not catastrophically. Maybe in the order of like 63 percent. Okay, uh, that's and, very and, yeah, and quite di- quite potentially quite diverse. Like different areas may flip at different rates. So you might see a pleiotropic effect where, say, China may hold on to its own Chinaness, while other areas of the world are are teleporting into this new place more rapidly. Right. Yeah. And you can imagine even subspaces within societies having their own uh, yeah. kind of local local dynamics. Yeah. I, I would expect that, actually. Right. Right. Yeah, that's that's really good. That's really good. Um, and so do you have a sense for you gave very good kind of you gave a very interesting general advice for how people should think about uh, navigating these sorts of things. Do you have, I'm just curious, you might not, but do you have any other kind of thoughts on how people should decide how to kind of allocate their, their risk portfolio in this regard? You know, that is, you know, for any, for any given person in a particular occupation, in a particular sector, in a particular uh, country, you know, there are obviously different strategic variables for um, how much you can afford to, you know, speak the truth boldly. Right. And I think this is something that people are really thinking through right now. And people are trying to think, because I think it's very clear to many people that our world, our social world has become filled with all kinds of lies, really. I mean, just the disingenuousness that holds together contemporary kind of Western society. There's so many little polite lies that, um, I think it's it's quite suffocating for for many people, right? It's, we're 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 far from the only ones, I think. And so a lot of people are planning, you know, some sort or strategizing some sort of way of of navigating themselves personally to this type of other sort of uh, yeah. equilibrium. But there are different and difficult kind of strategic calculations, right? Like some people might it might be well advised for some people to um, make that defection, but for other people, you know, actually it's maybe not a great time uh, or, or maybe this isn't the case. Maybe there is a categorical uh, directive here where like everyone should do it to the maximum of their, of their willpower uh, to the maximum their character is able to sustain. Um, this is a kind of categorical directive. Well, I think you just, I think you, you defined a very nice categorical directive because you also made it bespoke. Um, and I've actually been using recently something along the lines of the, I think it's either Buddhist or Hindu concept of Dharma here. Hmm. Um, and you can, we can map it to a more me- mechanistic model if you'd like, but it's something along the lines of what, well, well, I'll just say I found, and I've actually found this that many other people who I've spoken with have shared that there's a sort of, there's a sort of you-ness like you, you are something uh, you're not arbitrary and you're not generic. And so first is a, is, a, is a really a strong sense of humility and self-honesty. 
um, which gives rise to the ability to then feel Eunice the most clearly. And then endeavor to make the choices that are most fully in alignment with who you actually are. Um, I would say that the, the biggest traps that I've noticed are actually traps that are happening at the cognitive level. Um, because right now, for example, we're speaking at the cognitive level. And so already this might be perceived and it might be conceived and it might be acted upon in the context of being a, an injunction from a top-down cognitive perspective, which is to say an ideology. And so I find many, many people are, are caught in that. So what they end up doing is they think to themselves, well, I ought to X, Y, or Z. A good person would X, Y, or Z. They're, they're endeavoring to actually simulate character inside the context of a schema. Mm -hmm. And so that, I think, would be the first thing to break with, is to actually just break with that entirely and make a distinction maybe between what, what some people would call your constructed self and your, your essential, your authentic self, and try to reach a place of humility and self-honesty that is actually able to accept the reality of your authentic self in its innocence and in its richness. And then begin to make choices that are most fully in alignment with that authentic self. Because I can tell you for sure, life is insanely more pleasant and meaningful, even when it sucks and is hard, <laughs> if you're making choices along, on that basis. And then in that context, then you can start doing strategy. Because right. then you're actually, you're making strategy, you're making the choices, you're making strategic choices for the right reasons. But if That's you do strategy first, you get in trouble. So you're actually saying that people should... In, in the kind of current world that we're all trying to navigate right now, you think the the optimal strategy is to first, with a kind of reckless disregard to strategy, first just figure out who you are and do whatever you need to do following your gut to align yourself within an environment that that maximally kind of reflects uh, who you are. Do, do that without strategic reflection in a first phase, and then from there, make your strategic wagers. Well, let me clarify. Um, I, if, if what you mean by that is to say that people should make a bad strategic decision first, which is to say, you know, quit their job, abandon their family, leave their context, and go um, seek find themselves, that's actually a strategic decision in the context of then being a find out who you are decision. What I'm saying is, uh, okay, to the degree to which you can avoid making important decisions while getting clarity on your authentic self and separating yourself from your constructed environment and, and, and or your destructive environment. So if you're in toxic relationships, it becomes very easy. Okay, exit toxic relationships. If you're in a job that is causing an enormous amount of stress and monopolizing all your time, okay, you're going to have to get out of that. So you can make kind of like this progressive low-hanging fruit that frees up more space to be able to achieve a higher level of clarity on who you are because you can get rid of nonsense that is just nonsense. Mm -hmm. And then on that basis, you're now able to make better choices about the next step and use that better choice about the next step, step by step and work your way up. But always focusing on, okay, what's in the way right now that I could just get out of the way? Am I currently addicted to crack? Well, okay, let's stop being addicted to crack because that's just an obviously good choice. And mm -hmm. on the basis of no longer, which may not be hard, by the way, it's not trivial to get out of it. It's a good, easy choice, hard to do. But once you stopped, well, okay, now what's the next step? Cool. I can, I can actually get a sense of that. I don't, I don't think that my authentic self is, a, is, is an addict. Um, and you can, you can kind of move forward. So that's, kind of, that's the way of thinking about it is that you, you have a, maybe a meta strategy, which is on the basis of taking steps that is the, 
most lucid and clear step in the orientation of increasing the quality of the basis of making choices that you are able to make, and then not making more strategic commitments because the person you are now is shitty at doing long-term strategic commitments. But the person you will be if you start doing this will get better and better at it. And that as you get more clear, then you're able to make better strategic choices. And by the way, you also have better relationships with better people who can support you making those choices. And you may very well find that many of the things that had seemed very problematic have in fact evaporated of their own accord. Mm. Fascinating. Yeah, that's re- that's really good. Uh, if you don't mind, maybe we'll switch gears a little bit. I'll ask you just a few more uh, questions that may or may not be related to all of this. That, that was really useful though. And, and as I said, uh, it was strangely kind of personally useful. So I'm, I'm grateful to you, Jordan. Um, <laughs> Do you, what do you think about contemporary kind of party politics in the West, um, looking around at politicians and stuff like that? Do you, is there anyone in particular that you think or project in particular that you're kind of like this, that, you know, these people get it better than other people? Like a political party? Yeah. Um, or do you think they're all kind of equally delusional oh. in, in different symmetrical ways? Or do you think that, um, you know, for instance, like there are all these efforts to kind of what I would, what I would call kind of update the blue church to use your language. Um, you know, I see kind of like the Democratic Socialists of America and 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 that kind of group, you know, the the kind of the radical left wing of the Democratic Party. Um, you know, there's a lot of interest right now in somehow kind of trying to update these mainstream modern blue church institutions in a way that's more democratic and and even possibly socialist. Do you think that is promising at all or interesting at all? Or do you think that's uh, a blind alley? Yeah, I, I would say that's a blind alley. Um, okay. I think that there's there's some interesting stuff that happened in the five star movement and mm. in the in the previous iteration of the various pirate parties that had actually a a sense of coming from the future uh, but i think as a, a kind of a rule of thumb that to the degree to which you're going to be living in the future using frameworks that come from a very long distance in the past mm-hmm. maybe you can kind of extract some essential elements from them like, okay, take a look at democratic socialism and try to see, okay, what was the thing that actually made that interesting in its context and really, really extract out the essence of it in its most pure form and say, okay, now if I took that essence and, and redeploy it without any consideration of, say, mechanics, mechanisms, aesthetics, what would that look like now? Oh, okay, well, that might actually be very interesting. But right. I mean, imagining that you can use a, uh, a 19th century steam engine to fly a... Um, Mars lander seems like a pretty obvious bad choice. Right. And would, do you see Trump as kind of a similar blind alley or do you find interesting possibilities in that uh, milieu? Well, it, this is a, a mapping issue. If you identify Trump as a mapping to political party, then that's a blind alley. And and it might be. I don't really know. I don't spend I don't actually, I've never actually physically visited any of these particular groups. I don't know what's really happening inside. Um, if you consider Trump to be a, a consequence, a relatively predictable consequence of the collapse of the blue church in the context of the shifts that are going on, then it serves sort of two distinct goods. One good is um, shifting or ending the life of the blue church as rapidly as possible which, as I said, the drowning, you know, the, the, the metaphor of the drowning person, you need to kind of move them to a place where they're no longer flailing about. Um, and then secondarily, forcing, now unfortunately, oftentimes forcing people in a, in a situation of distress, which is problematic, and that's 
very problematic, but forcing people to begin the process of, as you say, jumping ship and beginning to say, okay, well, shit, something new has to happen. How do I begin exploring this novel space and figuring out how to do something which is at least somewhat adaptive to the context I find myself in? Um, which is, you know, that's generically quite good. Mm. Now, to the degree to which people are, are acting out of dis, dis, dismay, they are you know, going to the lower registers of the limbic system as their orienting basis, then the net results will be what they have always been when that is the orienting basis, which is terrible. Um, so, okay, avoid that. But, uh, well, I guess that's all I have to say about that. Yeah, okay. That's, that's well put. That's interesting. Um, so one of my, one of my uh, listeners who actually the person who recommended me to talk to you, uh, he told me that you once said that collapse is overripe. And he was very curious to know what you meant by that. Do you remember when you said that? Could you unpack that? I can unpack it. I mean, I don't remember when I said it, but it sounds like something I would say. Okay. It just goes back to that very first part of the story, which is um, under ordinary circumstances, any one of the specific areas of the world where the the experts know that the risk is a lot higher than um, people know would be enough to deliver on some kind of crisis. You know, so we're facing... An, an n-dimensional set of crises, any one of which would have been the big deal under any sort of almost any decade over the past 200 years. Um, and so by most reckonings, shit should have hit the fan a while ago. It's actually a, a testament to the durability of the social body um, and to the legacy act- effectiveness of the various blue church and other kinds of collective intelligences in the context of the larger scale collective intelligences that that hasn't happened. Um, but we're sort of way out over our skis in terms of uh, things falling apart. And so, and, and I, I guess a, a very concrete way of looking at this, I think this is actually the, the very specific path that got me to this conclusion, was if you just looked at the financial which is a nice kind of quantitative thing. And you take a look at step-by-step at each of the various elements that were done to address the financial crisis in 2008 and then the European financial crisis. Um, what you noticed was a, it was kind of like heroin for a broken leg, right? There, there was an externalization of the signaling function that we were in crisis. So we, we traded feeling good about what was going on in exchange for actually addressing the underlying problem. And this just externalized the damage into other locations. It externalized damage, for example, into the sociopolitical environment. I mean, if you want to do the tracing of Brexit and Trump, it's not hard to say, oh, it happened somewhere around 2010 when it was obvious that the financial crisis had been externalized into the sociopolitical domain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of like if you've got a binding of a bunch of ropes that are wound together and they're holding a heavy weight, and one of the ropes begins to fray, well, what happens is the, the weight shifts to other ropes. And even in that one rope is now actually holding less weight, but at the cost of other of the net net having less resilience against the weight that it's holding. So the likelihood that one of the other ropes beginning to fray has just gone up. The probability of another rope, but as that begins to fray, the weight shifts a little bit, and that, and, and that rope has less tension. It shifts its tension, but puts more weight on fewer ropes. And so what ends up happening is you get some kind of you're getting a positive feedback loop where there is a finite time where the whole thing pops. Uh, and the open question is, okay, well, where, how deep does the, does the, does the crisis go? So you can have like a lightweight crisis. Um, you know, we've had many of those in, in lots of different domains. Um, you know, say, just say, take, for example, the, 
the crisis of the collapse of the classified ads industry. And we had that. That was a real crisis. From the point of view of the classified ads people, that was a terrible crisis. From the point of view of the newspaper industry, it was a media crisis. From the point of view of the global economy, it didn't matter at all, right? Um, so you could have micro crises, and those are really good because they clear out, you know, underbrush and kind of shift things forward without causing bigger things to happen. But the longer, the more you delay a crisis and externalize the consequences into the broader system, the bigger the consequences will have to be to actually resolve the tension that's pent up in it. So that's what I mean by that. Is that what we've done? Is we've made a choice to guarantee that things are bigger and deeper when they finally do move significantly. Right. Okay. And so the current moment of of cultural political change that we're going through right now, which I, you know, the major reference points of which would be right Brexit, Trump, and I think more generally the the kind of backlash against political correctness that's going on right now, I see very much associated with these these uh, major political moments. If, if it's fair to kind of cluster those three things as representative of a kind of contemporary, you know, a uh, piece of the rope breaking in your, in your metaphor. Yeah. Do, do you, and I think that's consistent with some of the stuff I, I read that you wrote about the rise of the, the red church. I think that's fairly consistent with how you see it, not to reduce red, red, red religion. Oh, right. Sorry. Red, the red religion. Um, if, if this is an accurate way to see it, would you say that this current, you know, uh, moment of the of the rope coming apart is that um, do you see it as a as a mini crisis a moderate crisis or is this a kind of major world historical moment in your if you had to guess when you say the, the current you mean the political level I was saying specifically the the cluster of things that we could maybe uh, uh, kind Brexit, of Trump and de, yeah denote the, denote primarily by Brexit Trump yeah. and the current kind of Jordan Peterson, Quillette, kind of like a uh, little flowering of anti-political correctness, uh, intellectual breathing space that's opening up in some way, you know, me also, and you also, and, and, you know, people that this, this kind of stuff, I, I think it's reasonable to see it as, as one kind of package of the moment. Yeah. I, I would say the answer is yes. Um, I would say that we're somewhere in the domain in terms of measuring epochs of world historical, mm-hmm. uh, maybe the level of the enlightenment. You think that's what this is? Yeah. And, mm. uh, but I, 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 in the context of what I think we're actually the, the larger story that we're in, I don't think that's actually really significant. Um, hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm on record. So it's easy for me to say I'm on record as saying that I would be rather surprised if this transition was not at a, uh, 1000 year, like the rise of Western civilization out of the collapse of classical civilization or at the 10,000 year mark which is to say the rise of civilization out of uh, nomadic um, band level constructs. Hmm. It seems rather obvious that, that has to be the case to me at least. So in that context, an, an enlightenment level shift coming up is kind of not that, not that surprising. I see what you mean. Okay. So it's not as grand as it, as it might sound at a first glance. Okay. Right. Yeah. So if you're looking at it from the point of view of say 1999, it should be holy shit. That's a big deal. Like things are definitely right. bigger than than they were. Uh, if you're looking at it from the point of say 2030, it's going to be a minor piece of the story from my perspective. Although, sure. Yeah. Po- I mean, hopefully, a very important one. Yeah. No. That that the sense of scale and the and the the, the comparison uh, is very relevant. It makes makes a lot of sense to me. So I now I'm 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 now going to kind of try to wrap this up with some questions that are coming from the public chat that that's actually watching and listening to us right now. Well, that's fun. So, 
um, if you're cool with that, if you're cool with some random questions. One is uh, about your favorite books. What what are you what what books would you recommend to people right now that you think are most worth reading? Maybe you could give three if you can think of three. Um, there's actually if you want to learn if you want to get more there's actually two places you can go to get a list of the books that i recommend nice uh one is a comment inside a comment on my youtube channel <laughs> nice. and the other is one of my medium posts in a collection called practical imagination okay um cool. there you go but i will give three okay let me see Well, one of my standby favorites is a 1994 book by Manuel de Landa called War in the Age of Intelli Intelligent Machines. So I'd okay. recommend that. Um, I guess I'll, I'll go keep those thematic. So I'll keep them kind of in the same zone. I would also recommend the book Damon by Daniel Suarez, which is a science fiction book. Hmm. And hmm, that third one. What would be a good third book in that context? Oh, uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Okay. I, I know of the first one and the third one. I've never heard of the second one, so you learn something new every day. <laughs> do you? Uh, what do you think of Vinay Gupta, who I don't know, but someone in the chat wants to know what you think about him, if you know about him? I, I mean, all I know is I know about him. I've never actually spent time with him. Um, okay. And his reputation is sort of universal, which is he is sort of – he's kind of like uh, Nassim. He's oh, yeah. Nassim. That same reputation. I've interacted with them very, very briefly, and it seems to be about right. Okay. All right. Cool. Um, I, I noticed. Uh, I was also looking through your YouTube channel. I was curious. Do you have what? What are your plans for the YouTube channel? I think you should do live streams. They're fun. I don't have any. The, the notion of a live stream is is rather uh, interesting. Um, I do not currently have any plans for my YouTube channel. Okay. Um, I was just curious. And I actually never had any plans for my YouTube channel. I just began doing it and responding to what was happening. Um, I noticed that I haven't shot any videos in a long time, so it may be that I have lost interest in that sort of thing. Fair enough. Oh, but here's something I learned that was I thought was very amusing. It makes sense retroactively, but it appears that at least some fraction of the population really deeply believes that the only reason to create a YouTube channel is to get on the Joe Rogan show. <laughs> Why did? How did you learn that? What, what do you mean? A, a number of comments um, have taken it as almost axiomatic that it, or confusing as to, well, you've created a YouTube channel. And it seems to have some high quality content. It is confusing as to why you're not on the Joe Rogan show. Like, obviously, that must be why you did it. And it seems like you should be able to. So why hasn't it happened? <laughs> uh, I can say categorically that I did not. And I, I have never intended to get on the Joe Rogan show or the Dave Rubin show. Although both gentlemen seem very pleasant. Um, and I certainly would not. Uh, well, no, actually, after listening, I got pointed to the Elon Musk interview with Joe Rogan. And after that, I would be, I would, I would participate in, in a conversation with Joe. Um, but I don't have any particular aspirations to that kind of thing. So I, I created the YouTube channel really, honestly, really because I kept getting requests from people to, to explain certain things to them. And so I figured to be more efficient, if I just kind of like explained it in a general purpose format, I could just send them the link. <laughs> um, and it has definitely served that purpose. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, people really don't understand the magic of of contemporary communication technology. People are constantly missing missing the point. I think like people are always imagining if you want to do YouTube or you want to do any of the write a blog or whatever. People are always imagining there has to be some sort of like like ulterior motive that has something to do with like uh, 
Well, it's like always referring back to the blue church, right? It's always this, people always have this deeply ingrained tendency to um, refer themselves back to whatever represents kind of like power at the center of the spectacle that, you know, where attention is, where um, other people are looking. But the, I mean, it's, it's, it's missing precisely the point, which is precisely that now is the time to uh, disconnect your attention from where everyone else is looking and simply look around you to whatever is most immediately interesting and attractive and valuable to you. That's immediately available to you because there's millions of people and ideas and projects and texts and, and, and everything that's actually within your reach (laughs) that you can get to work on immediately and just get after it and do that. And before you know it, you're on all of these interesting vectors. And before you know it, you're the next fucking Joe Rogan and he's an old man and no one cares about him anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. That's very well said. I agree. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, I think um, that's I'm like, I think it's a shame because you were talking before about like evolutionary traps and or just traps and pitfalls in particular. And in general, you were talking about at, at a certain point in the conversation previously. And I think this is this is a real major one. And I don't know if you're familiar with the kind of like left wing critiques of what they call the society of the spectacle. You know, it's this kind of uh, like These were the guys in the 1970s. Yeah, exactly. The, you know, 1960s uh, French French people basically yeah. you know, kind of uh, post. What's that? Guy Dubard. Yeah, exactly. Guy Debord, yeah, the situation. Yeah. And I read, uh, I read that back in the day. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the, the one kernel that I really took from all of that, that I think you, you see very clearly in this conversation we're having right now, which is um, people do really just um, overly refer themselves back to to what they imagine other people are 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 thinking and, and what they care about. And it really prevents them from doing a lot of so much that they could do immediately. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. And it kind of sucks too. It's sort of like uh, you're not feeding yourself. You're not, you know, you're not getting. It's, it's funny. I can imagine. So, like, just like do it very simple. Imagine if you chose to eat based upon what you think you thought other people wanted to eat. <laughs> it's such an obviously silly thing to do. Um, but I get it. I mean, we've been trained from child, well, not birth, but shortly after birth, to be unbelievably tuned to this notion of broadcast asymmetric collective attention. Um, so it's visceral. It's hard to train yourself. You have to be conscious. You have to consciously train yourself off of it. You can't just, or you might just get lucky and and just have not been on that train, but it's pretty rare. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think that, I think that things are becoming so, so flattened and they're going to continue becoming so flattened that I think you'll see more and more people doing all kinds of stuff like this just for their own sustenance, you know, for the immediate intrinsic value that it brings to their life. And before you know it, you know, they're like, in some sense, the Joe Rogan, like someone like Joe Rogan is a kind of um, what happens when you take the blue church down a notch, you know? So it's like you used to have like one Walter Cronkite, right? And then right. That, that gets decimated into like, you know, 2000 uh, Walter Cronkites that are at a little bit of a lower level, but these things happen over time, right? So, you know, like Joe Rogan is a Walter Cronkite for a particular slice of the personality you right. know, profiles of, of the population. And then all of the other people kind of at his level of fame or attention are just a bunch of mini Cronkites, but every passing year, the number of those Cronkites is going to get, you know, uh, increased at a lower and lower flatter level, I think. And I think w- where it's ultimately going is people are going to be doing this just for their own purposes in their own groups for its own intrinsic benefits and values. And it's not going to be this like media fame game where people are, like right now people think about these things as like, Oh, who's got more followers. Who's like making more money off of it. Who's, 
who's winning the game, who's at the top of the pyramid. But people like the precisely what we're talking about is that that pyramid is going away. It's rapidly being flattened in every passing year. Who has the most followers matters less and less. And what really matters is like how effective is the intelligence community or structure or institution that you have operating around you just for its own intrinsic purposes. That's that's how I see it. I think that's consistent with what with your view. Quite, you yeah. Yes. And I'm the only thing I would say is that it's to me, there's um, kind of an inside and an outside correlation. Mm. One is from the inside perspective, that is actually the thing that feels the best. Mm, yeah. So there's like the distinction between having 10,000 Facebook friends and having 10 friends. <laughs> yeah. Um, but second is, again, I strongly believe that this also tends to be is exactly isomorphic with the collective intelligence topology that is maximum, maximally intelligent. Yes. So it's fun. Like it's actually by playing this new game, this game B, um, you simultaneously get to live the more, most fulfilling and meaningful life and also happen to be perfectly deployed. Your personal energy is fully participating in that which will ultimately, would ultimately be the best possible way of constructing a collective intelligence, which is to say the, the thing that is the maximally intelligent place to be. Right. I like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I don't want to keep you too long. I know we've been talking for quite a while. Maybe if it's okay with you, I'll ask you just one more question. Is that cool? That sounds perfect. Yeah. All right. Great. Um, maybe I'll make this last question about blockchain. I think from what I gather, you're, you're rather bullish on, on blockchain. Do you see it as, um, how should I put this? Um, you, you, do you think people kind of underestimate its significance or do you think people kind of overestimate its significance. Hmm. Um, gosh. Or just, you don't have to, I mean, you could just tell me why you think blockchain is interesting. And uh, Oh, no, no, I, 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 I want to give you a good answer, but it's not, okay. it's decidedly not trivial. So to do this right, we have to actually build some constructs. Okay. <laughs> so the first construct is something called Senius. Uh, Senius is kind of like the genius of a scene, or it's the, the emergence of a collective intelligence around some novel capacity or some novel attractor. Uh, so punk rock is a senius, quantum mechanics is a senius, the emergent PC was a senius, the organic food movement is a senius, like fill in the blank. There's lots and lots of these. Okay. The second is a self-organizing collective intelligence. So this is a particular subset of the of senius where the characteristics of the senius give rise to a series of feedback loops whereby the the collective intelligence has the capacity to maintain or increase its its capacities, what it is, by virtue of what it is. Um, so punk rock had less of a self-organizing collective intelligence character than, say, the personal computer. Mm -hmm. you know, so more people who participated in the PC universe increased the demand for PCs, which increased the economic flows, which increased more people who wanted to participate and sort of caused that collective intelligence to expand. It had a very flat capacity, could only do certain things, but you know, we, we're doing what we're doing because that happened. So within that context, when we say blockchain, I definitely don't mean the technological innovation of Satoshi that was able to resolve, produce a solution to the Byzantine general's problem. Um, I don't really necessarily refer to the senius that that is an aspect of. Right? So if I think of, of, I'll use punk rock as an example, we might say that, say, Bitcoin represents, I don't know, the clash or the sex pistols 
um, and Ethereum represents the Ramones or something like that, right? So we've got a very different flavor of something which is clearly part of the larger milieu um, and is currently operating under senior rules. Uh, in this case, both Bitcoin and Ethereum represent a inter- internally they are self-organizing collective intelligences in the broader context of the seniors. So what I am bullish on is that the the seniors of the blockchain, sometimes also called cryptocurrency, sometimes called the token economy, right? It, the fact that it has many different names is a good sign. Has it? It has a a different capacity than the space that it's operating in. Most notably, I'll have to give some caveats, but let me just cut the part that's good. The, 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 the optimistic part is that it, it still attaches a premium to people who are able to think clearly about very complicated things and communicate with clarity and honesty, those complicated things. So it selects for vitalics. Um, it does not select principally does not select for bullshit. Now caveat, all CNESs become almost immediately parasitized by bullshit and the blockchain mm-hmm. space is full of bullshit. So the diet, you know, the, 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 the struggle is on to see whether or not the potential of the blockchain to be a place where clear and very lucid, complex thinking about big questions is supported or it dissolves into just a miasma of, of uh, marketing bullshit and right. financial gerrymandering. Um, so it's kind of, it's in its, I'd say maybe it's early teenage stage. It's a tween right now. It's about 10 or 11. Okay. Very gawky. It's a very gawky teenager. I'll tell you what. Um, but the, the potential that if I, if I take, for example, the number of people who are interested in and able to think about the early part of our conversation, you know, the proposition of what would be the characteristics of a maximally intelligent collective intelligence and why would that even be an interesting question to ask and and then i look at the population of the of that the portion of that population that has some of their attention in the blockchain space it's actually relatively high so to the degree to which the blockchain space is able to build institutional frameworks to police against parasites and bullshit artists and select for clear, honest thinking, kind of like to say the way mathematics was able to do that, or science, which differentiated science from magic in the beginning, was its ability to build those kinds of institutional structures and say, okay, this is pseudoscience and bullshit, and this is, in fact, clear thinking, and we have ways of of separating those things somewhat rigorously, not perfectly, but a hell of a lot better in in prior centuries, then the blockchain space as a senius is able to, will, will be able to realize the potential that lives in the seniors and that potential is extremely large and it is entirely possible that we could see a shift of 75 percent of the global economy into that seniors in a decade if it had it shipped together hmm. it's quite likely it won't uh, we may see we may see zero it may just die that's unlikely um it's there's too much potential and there's too much dysfunction in the legacy uh, technology industry um, but the potential is 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 very very high, and it's still quite ripe. Like it, the, it's too early to tell exactly whether or not these these subgroups will figure it out, and it doesn't take many. 
it could be like as little as 10 people if they were able to really, really get a clean structure that was, was able to be very effective while maintaining a high integrity institutional framework, everybody else would begin to emulate that and it would grow um, organically into a, a, a much more powerful collaborative space. Okay, right. That's, that's interesting. Is there a particular kind of social application or kind of social engineering solution that you think blockchain could possibly provide that you're personally most kind of excited about or paying most attention to? Uh, yeah, uh, the one that I'm actually the most excited about is the a, a, a new form. So how do I say this right? So there's the Yellow Pages and there's Google. There's the flea market and there's eBay. There's first Barnes and Noble and then Walmart and there's Amazon. Okay. Mm -hmm. There is the city and there's X. X is the thing that I'm most excited about that the blockchain as a senior can give rise to. Mm. Wow. That's interesting. So it's, it's sort of so much of a question mark that you don't even know what you would call it. I mean, what I would call it is, is, is going to be bad because I'm not a marketing guy, so I can't name things well. Uh, but it, it will be in relationship to the way that we go about organizing our ways of living with each other in spatio context. Right. That gives rise to the highest quality ways that we actually coordinate our activities together in the generative direction. Right? So it's, it's going to actually resolve the question of how we live and how we develop, how we how we do. Um, hmm. That's very interesting. That's very interesting. I mean, there's so much more I'd love to talk about, but I don't want to overtax you. And we've done a good two hours, man. So this has been really interesting and really edifying, and it's been fun too. So I, I'm I'm inclined to let you off the hook now. I think if, if if that sounds good to you. Yeah, thank you. It has been a while. I can actually feel my lower back is definitely needing some stretching. Um, well, uh, thank you. I enjoyed this conversation, and um, I, I think I'll, I'll be chewing on some of the questions and some of the ideas for a while, and I hope that you and the folks who choose to watch it uh, felt like their time was well spent. Yeah, the chat, the people in the chat seem to be enjoying it. In fact, a few people said, a few people watching right now are, are I think, big fans of yours, and they, a few people said that they feel like you, you kind of broke some ground in this conversation, like saying some things they never saw you uh, right before or say before. I don't know if you if that if you would agree with that, but that's interesting. Well, it was sh shocking if that weren't the case. Um, yeah, so that, that's always a good sign. That's probably yeah. that's maybe one of the best measures I think of uh, a successful conversation, at least along the lines that I like to do them. Um, you know, I'm not a fan of like you know doing too much rehearsal of of previous. <laughs> oh no, 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 that's very that's very game A. That's very game A. Game B, you you do it in real, you do it in, in real time, and you always should break some new ground. And if you yes. have a good interlocutor, if you have a good conversation, you'll definitely break new ground. Definitely, definitely. I'm, I, I think you and I uh, are both on the same page in that way, for sure. And that's probably why this was uh, fun. And yeah, the people watching, I think, have quite enjoyed it also. So uh, thanks again, and we'll stay in touch. You know, my, my line's open if you want to uh, ever follow up on any of these things. Sounds good. Remember, I'm uh, having a baby in a month, so I will probably be going awfully dark. Of course. Uh, maybe even until the end of the year. Cool. Uh, well, congratulations right. to you. And uh yeah, definitely enjoy enjoy life with your family and uh, away from the internets for a while. Good luck making your choices.
Thanks, man. I appreciate that. And I appreciate, I appreciate you sharing your, uh, you know, your insights and having these interesting, uh, especially with respect to my somewhat, some of my personally motivated um, curiosities. It was, it was interesting to get your, your take on them. Right on. All right, Jordan. Thanks again. Take it easy. Hey everybody. Thanks for listening. If you thought that was cool, then don't forget to subscribe and it would be even cooler if you left a review. I'd appreciate that. And yeah, just to learn more about what I'm up to, you can check out theotherlifenow.com. That's all. And I will see you around the internet.